0: during the feast, lest there be an uproar of the people. Probably not the best response to love, but that was one of many we're going to look at today. One of the things that makes the human brain irreplaceable by, or impossible to replicate, as far as creating an AI, artificial intelligence, or, or computer program, that can take on the complexity of the human brain is just that, that it is so complex, there's innumerable possibilities of responses that we have to exactly the same information and stimulus. Logical cause and effect programmed intelligence can't do that. It always responds the same to a certain set of data, unless it's told otherwise by someone who can perceive non-digitized clues, such as us. People are a wonderful and complex creation. We're all in many ways the same. One brain, one heart, one soul. We have pretty much the same five senses. It's somehow the same stimula- stimulation, the same stimuli. All those things can elicit very different responses from people. Why? Why does one child love broccoli and not like sweets? Why does one child talk non-stop and you got to coax another one to talk? And Kelly's laughing because I'm actually thinking about our grandkids. The twins, Dax and Quinn, born at the same time, within minutes of each other, raised the same, springing from the same gene pool, and yet they respond to the world and people in very different ways. Yes, there's a boy and girl difference, but we're supposed to believe that's just culturally imposed, right? Yeah, right. Give a little boy a Barbie doll, and she's soon enlisted in the X-Men Academy, and and fighting off Transformers from outer space. And uh, or you give a little girl a G.I. Joe doll and pretty soon he's having a polite tea party with, with the teddy bear and what's left of Barbie after her ninja skills were traded in by a little brother for a stick that looks like a gun and he's chasing bears in the backyard. <laughs> yes, I know kids a little bit. But gender differences aside, People have very different responses to the, the things that are put before them. And we see that quite starkly in the 14th chapter of Mark. I'm going to lower this because I'm getting a lot of noise there. And I think there's a lot of things at play here. The, why we have different responses. We're created differently and predisposed to perceive and react certain ways by the personality our Creator gives us. We're really not created as blank slates. But then. Beyond the raw instinct of the personality that we begin with, we begin to make choices. Choices that lead to other choices that begin to empower or squelch perceptions and responses in us. We begin to hardwire our brains and make decisions as to how much influence our hearts are going to have on who we are. We can either listen to it or we don't. Chosen responses create the pathways, the hardwires, what's gonna become the superhighways in our brain that are gonna keep taking over and dictating our responses, unless we choose to create new pathways. We don't have to keep using those old ones. We can choose new responses that leave our old pathways to fall into disrepair. And that free will to choose our responses is what, what makes us human. The scriptures call that being transformed by the renewing of your minds. We have to control the inflow of information if possible and not allow unwanted or destructive input to cause us to lose control. We have to guard our our hearts and minds and keep our eyes on Christ. And the only one, he's really the only one with the power to really initiate the big adjustments in our thinking. Romans 12, 1 through 2. Present your body as a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Don't let the world hardwire your brain. Let the word and let, let the Lord, let your own ability to choose right from wrong, do that. That you may prove what is good and acceptable in the perfect will of God. There has to be decisions made on, on our part to want to respond positively appropriately, and to allow the Holy Spirit to change the heart, to give us eyes to see. Jesus says all the time, he who has eyes to see, he who has ears to hear. That's what he's talking about. You who choose to respond appropriately. If you want eyes to see, you're going to have eyes to see. If you want ears to hear, you're going to have ears to hear. Otherwise, we're only seeing with the eyes of flesh. And then we're going to be the Pharisees and the Judases, and uh, just in it for the glory of disciples that we're going to meet today's scriptures. I'm kind of getting into the weeds here, I didn't want to turn this into Psychology 101, but I think our responses are partly determined by what our hearts and our souls are allowed to see by our minds, and by how much influence we allow our hearts and souls to have on our minds. We're more than just gray matter with little electronic firings going on in there that dictate what we think and feel. There's a lot more going on in there in our hearts and our souls. We have to allow our hearts and our souls to have an influence on our mind and vice versa. The angers and hurts nurtured, feelings and suppressed, or given free reign, voices of influence, given space in our minds, whether good or bad, acknowledgements of spiritual promptings from the Lord or from the enemy are going to determine who we are and what our responses are. The human creature is a complex thing. But that's because we're created in the image of God. And if we so choose, all of us have the ability and the opportunity to respond to things the way God intended us to respond. Especially when it comes to responding to his son. Do we want him to put him to death by trickery? Or are we going to preserve him from that death by responding to that conniving with an uproar? They wanted to put him to death by trickery, but they wouldn't do it because they knew there'd be an uproar. Very different responses there. Well, obviously, we want to respond to Jesus positively. We would never reject or spite our our Messiah. Right? Well, that's what everyone in the Gospels thought, too. Yet, we see very different responses to Jesus here. And you can bet that every one of the players in this narrative of the last days of Jesus' life on earth thought that their response was the proper one in the moment that they were responding. And it's how they get to these moments of their responses that intrigues me, and I think we need to learn from. They all had the same information, yet they all chose to give different things influence and place in their hearts. It's like the old saying, which beast fighting for control of your life is going to win? The one that you feed. So let's get to that scripture. Mark 14. We're going to... Start in verse 1, because we did the middle of the chapter last week, so aptly pontificated upon by Dana. I shouldn't use big words, I never pronounce them right. (laughs) The scripture, chapter 1, Mark 14. Mark 14, verse 1, about that? After two days it was the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might take him by trickery and how they might put him to death. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar of the people. And being in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, just like that for a name. Hello, I'm Simon the leper. I think I'll skip the handshake, thanks. <laughs> As he sat at the table, a woman came... <laughs> Get to set the stage here, you know, <laughs> and sat at the table. A woman had an alabaster flask, a very costly oil of spikenard. Then she broke the flask and poured it on his head. Jesus, that is, not Simon. But there were some who were indignant among themselves and said, Why was this fragrant oil wasted? For it might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they criticized her sharply. But Jesus said, Let her alone. Why do you trouble her? She's done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always, and whenever you wish, you can do good to them, too. But me, you do not always have. She has done what she could. She has come beforehand to anoint my body for burial. Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the whole world, how's that for a prophetic statement, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad. And they promised to give him money. And he sought how he might conveniently Jump down to verse 27. Now they're at the, what we know is the Last Supper. Then Jesus said to them, All of you will be made to stumble this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I'll go before you to Galilee. Peter said to them, Even if all are made to stumble, yet I will not be. I'm the rock. Jesus said to him, "Assuredly, I say to you today, even this night, before the rooster crows twice, you'll deny me three times. But he spoke more vehemently. If I have to die with you, I will not, den- I will not deny you. And they all said likewise. Yeah. yeah, me too. Okay, we'll stop there. There we go. PowerPoint dance. We can probably assume that because of the stay <laughs> we can probably assume because of the very similar recounting of the story of the anointing in the gospel of the woman who came in and poured the alabaster flask of spikenard in Jesus' head that this woman is Mary of Bethany. Lazarus and Martha's sister. The Mary who had so controversially sat at Jesus' feet listening as her sister served, and who we'd see later having her brother Lazarus raised from the dead. So, what we see here is an act of pure, unselfish love and devotion as she pours out on Jesus what would have been a very expensive, rare, and special kind of ointment called spikenard. Came from a plant that grows in India and was probably brought there on a camel caravan down the Silk Road, and it uh, would have been, this, this stuff was so valuable and in the, in the flask itself, so incredibly beautiful and expensive, carved from stone, literally, um, alabaster, that oftentimes it was an heirloom that mother would hand down to daughter. They wouldn't even use it, they would just have this. This is, this is precious. But Mary, despite what others may think, or the cost to her, breaks the neck of this costly and beautiful flask, car from alabaster and pours it on Jesus' head, and according to the story in John, on his feet as well. And then he even wipes it in with her hair. Quite unbecoming, really, especially for a young woman from a respected household. This isn't the same story as the woman who washed Jesus' feet with her tears. This is a different event. This is Mary from Bethany, pretty well to do, one of Jesus' supporters. And she humbles herself and and, and does this incredible act of humility. But she doesn't care what others think. She doesn't care if she's going to embarrass herself or seem unbecoming. She doesn't care how they're going to respond. She's not just pouring out scented oil. She's pouring out her heart. She desperately wanted to pour out her heart to express her barely contained love for this Messiah. How can I do that? And she comes up with this. This is the most lavish and sincere way that she can think of to do that. She listens to her heart, and her heart wins the day, because her heart is listening to the Spirit, and her mind comes in line and complies. And she's derided for it by those who see with their eyes, but not with their hearts. But at the same time, she's blessed by the one who matters, the one who sees her heart, Jesus. It would probably be the only true and pure expression of love and devotion that Jesus would receive that entire tumultuous last week of his life. It had to have been a gift that his heart desperately needed as he's about to face his final rejection alone. And it was expressed without a single word spoken. Yes, words are necessary, but they're but a trigger and a reminder of what cannot truly be expressed by mere words love is felt not heard it's best expressed with the eyes through which one can see into the soul as Jesus taught us it's best received with a look or a touch when the words can't come because the feeling is just too deep the deepest and truest expressions of love are communicated heart-to-heart so that's what Mary's doing here for Jesus you all know that look, that feeling when you want to say something to somebody, but you're just you're so overwhelmed with, with emotion and with love for that person, and all you can really do is look at them. It's a, it's a love that comes from a depth of emotion and conviction that can only pass between a husband and a wife, a child and a parent or a grandparent, between brothers and sisters and the Lord, those who share a common heart a like mind, or a spiritual bond. When there's something powerful between you two that no one else can understand or know but those who share it. And it's the love that finds its origins in our God. And it's the love that he has for us. The look he has in his eyes when he sees us. We always picture him with a frown. Why did you do that? You wait till your daddy gets home. Yikes. No. If we only take the time to look back at him and respond with our hearts and not just our heads and our lips, we're going to recognize that look. It's a word, it's a look it's a love that's not spoken, it can only come from deep in the spirit. Likewise the spirit helps us in our weaknesses. For we do not know how we should pray as we ought. But the Spirit Himself makes intercession with us for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now he who searches the heart knows what the mind of the spirit is. Because he makes intercessions for the saints according to the will of God. If we don't connect with the, on a heart and soul level with Jesus, we're really missing the whole point. And our responses are going to be way off. Like this one. But there are some there who are indignant among themselves. Why was this fragrant oil wasted? For it might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor." And he criticized her sharply. Now this response, in the eyes of those there who are saying this to themselves or among themselves, they don't think they're responding to Jesus, they're responding to Mary and her actions toward Jesus. Why did she do this? But really, it is a response to Jesus, because it's born of their hearts towards him. Now, these weren't Pharisees at this dinner. These were the apostles, the chosen 12, and probably some of his other close followers and friends. These are the ones who profess to be his closest friends and followers, his confidants, and the ones he loves. And yet, they respond by being indignant. Well, wasn't that a grand waste? Surely that money and that ointment was worth could have made a generous gift to the poor, now that would have pleased the Lord. Right, Jesus? They professed a great love for Jesus, yet it was mostly in their heads. They saw the miracles, experienced the compassion and genuine love that Jesus had for the hurting and the downcast, the overlooked and despised, of which all of them were until Jesus came along and loved them, and yet they're all still out to get something from him in return for their love. We followed you. What are we going to get? We want to sit at your right hand in the kingdom. We want to have the greatest, we want to have the power. We want to be able to call down fire from heaven and destroy cities that don't like us. They had stuck by Jesus through thick and thin this far, giving up and leaving behind everything they had known, yet they failed to recognize, let alone replicate, the true and heartfelt and raw expression of love that's being poured out on Jesus by this woman in front of them. Who does she think she is? Well, I think they did recognize it, and they're jealous. They're jealous of the look of pure and unexpressible love that Jesus gives her, that they share between themselves in that moment, because they knew their own hearts were lacking in that same depth, that same depth of love that they could sense in the room. And so their heads tell their hearts to shut up. And their mouth starts spewing spewing foolishness to cover. To cover their shortcomings of faith and devotion. The mouth speaks from the overflow of the heart. But the hearts which contain the greatest love can only express that love with actions. So she did the most loving thing she could think of, or at least what came to her. And she followed her heart and allowed her head to follow. She's done what she could. She has come beforehand to anoint my body for burial. Surely I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be preached, told as a memorial to her. Because Mary followed her heart and did what she could, because she didn't let her head get in the way, as as those men in the room were doing, and convinced herself that, She didn't allow her head to convince her that this would be an extravagant and foolish waste that really accomplished nothing but making Jesus smell good for a little while while embarrassing herself in the process. Her mind knew this was a big gamble, but because she listened to her heart, she listened to the spirit, and because of that she's fulfilling a prophetic and important act that no one but Jesus understood at that moment no one knew the significance of but the Lord. She was anointing him for his burial, which was going to come just a day or two later, and giving him what would be the last and only sincere measure of comfort and insurance that he would receive from another human before his brutal arrest and execution. Because Mary listened to her spirit and allowed herself to know the truth, she was moving in the prophetic without saying a word. Think about that. The next time you move to act on something the head doesn't understand, remember this: the seemingly insignificant act of foolish ways was an anathema to the well-versed chosen twelve. But Mary was one who knew what was important. This was a lifestyle for her. She knew when it was talk and when it was time to listen. She knew when it was time to work and when it was time to sit. She was the one who was chided by her sister Martha for sitting at Jesus' feet listening while Mary fretted about all the work that needed to be done. Mary was the one who unashamedly and passionately threw herself at Jesus' feet, weeping, laying it all out. Though, Lord, if you have been here, my brother would not have died. Therefore, Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her weeping, and he groaned in his spirit and was troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? In that moment, Jesus was heartbroken also. Over her heart broke, he felt it. From his passionate and honest heart that moved Jesus to share in her grief and would spur him on to do his greatest miracle to date, raising a man long dead and buried. Mary knew when it was time to connect with her Lord. In this day in the house of Simon the leper was one of those times. Not for her, not for her brother, this time, it was for Jesus, and for both of them. They both needed this. And we could all learn a valuable lesson here. If our relationship and time spent seeking and being with the Lord is always to see what we can get, then it's not a true heart response to the love that we're so freely given. And it's not a response that is influenced or inspired by the Holy Spirit. Then there's this infamous response. And Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they're glad and promised to give him money. So he said how he might conveniently betray them. Heaven forbid it would be inconvenient. So Judas had what I decided to call a swayed response to Jesus. Swayed by preconceived and selfish notions and greed swayed by political aspirations and persuasions. Judas was a zealot, part of a group that actively pursued and plotted the overthrow of the Roman overlords and the return of Jewish sovereignty, and he saw Jesus as a means to that end. After all, isn't that what the messiah is supposed to do? What he's supposed to be about? Restoring the eternal throne of David? Surely this involves some military action and divine intervention like Joshua and his army when they took the city of Jericho by marching around it and praying and shouting, or when David himself took the city of Jerusalem from the pagan Jebusites by the edge of the sword, yeah, let's do this, now it's our turn, our Messiah's here. We're going to kick some butt. What do you mean you're going to be crucified? What kind of an overthrow is that? Now you're just sitting here basking in the lavish waste of this ointment that the silly woman's just dumped all over you? You could use that money to buy swords. That's it. Um, excuse me, i got to go talk to a man about a horse. We'll see you guys later. So Jesus goes and begins the process of betraying the Lord. <laughs> just a little Western flavor there. <laughs> Might have been going to see a man about a donkey, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but Judas is being swayed by the Spirit. But it wasn't the Holy Spirit, and it really wasn't his bladder either. It's the devil himself motivating him at this point. His response and in indignant self-righteousness, his zealousness for hateful and vengeful retribution against his political enemies. I a lesson in there for us his own hardened notions of how things would have to be done, all these closed his eyes to the truth and opened his eyes up and opened up his heart to the enemy. But even so, Jesus would continue to have fellowship with him. He still gets to come to the next dinner party and sit with Jesus. And Jesus tries to warn him, but his heart is too far gone to respond even to the outright warnings from the Lord himself. Who's going to betray you? Surely it can't be one of us. It is one of the twelve who dips with me in the dish. The Son of Man indeed goes, just as that's written of him, but woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he'd never been born. That's a pretty stark warning. And it's pretty specific. As Judas is sitting there dipping his bread in the oil, Jesus says, it's the one who's dipping his oil in my dish. He's going to betray me. It'd be better if he hadn't been born. And he still goes and does it. He failed to recognize the spiritual influence of the enemy that it was poisoning his response to Jesus. He has a rebellion to preserve. And he has 30 pieces of silver coming. The plan is in motion. To heck with this love stuff. Well, that's where he would end up. You know, heck is for places, for the place for people who say, gosh darn it. Anyways, think about that later. In there but for the grace and patience of God, go we, Hades. But we can't depend on pure emotional responses either. There's other responses here, like Peter, who seems to be all feeling and passionate with no understanding or conviction. Peter says to him, even if everyone's made to stumble, not me. Jesus says, assuredly I say to you that today, even this night, before the rooster crows twice, you're going to deny me three times. And he speaks more vehemently, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. They all say the same thing. The heart alone is not enough to keep us following either. It's not enough to keep us falling when it gets hard. The head has to be determined, for the heart alone can be a fickle thing. We have to be prepared to give an answer for the hope that is in us. Because when the heart is afraid, the head has to remind the heart, why are you doing this? Feelings and passion alone can't convince the feet to stand when the mind can't think of any good reason not to run. That's empty religion. Fair-weather following, all fluff and no depth, no conviction. We've seen a lot of that in the church in America. As people fall away for this very reason. It's easier just to deny your beliefs than to face the challenges of the young lady in the courtyard where the cool people are. Peter was about to be canceled. The server girl saw him and began to say to those who stood by, this is one of them, this is one of those radicals who believes all this crazy stuff, aren't you? And he denies it. No! No! That's not me. I don't even know the guy. And Peter would learn his lesson later, that he needs to have more than passion and emotion. He needs to know why he believes. But this night he's failing miserably. He's trying to avoid being canceled. like I said, to, to use today's vernacular. So in this section of scripture, this chapter Mark, we see all these incredible accounts of Jesus and his interactions with people. People who are just like us. No doubt we can find ourselves in any of these characters. Maybe more than one. And that's really the point. To recognize that these are more than just stories of long ago people in a far away place, this is a little real-time slice of eternity being played out before our eyes. For those who have eyes to see and ears to hear, what the Spirit is teaching. And what I think he wants to teach us today is that these interactions, these various responses to who Jesus was, what he said, and the love and truth that he represented was, these are the same interactions that are happening today. The same Jesus interactions that are happening today. Jesus is with us. The Holy Spirit is not just a myth. It's not just some mystic and personal power that makes us feel warm and fuzzy if we're good or makes things happen that shouldn't. The Holy Spirit is a person. The part of the three-part God that resides in the hearts of those who believe what Jesus taught when he said that he would not leave us as orphans, that he would come to us. The Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him or knows him. But you know him, for he dwells in you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. Jesus said the Holy Spirit is in him. The Holy Spirit is Jesus in the Father in us. The Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit of Jesus, the Holy Spirit is the Father. And the Holy Spirit dwells in us. Just look at the way Jesus phrased this. Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him or knows him. It's a person. It's a him. So how are you responding to him? How do you respond when a challenge when he challenges you to learn something new, to adjust your preconceived notions, to let go of the religious I'm better than you attitude? We must put this radical voice of heresy to death. When the ignorant masses are not looking, of course, the chief priest in the scratch reaction, how do you respond when you see someone behaving in what you deem to be an over-the-top, this person, some kind of lunatic, lost in emotion, kind of way towards what must surely be an inaccurate perception of Jesus? Well, that's just not dignified. Look at the way that person's acting during worship. Why was all this wasted? Criticized her sharply. How do you respond when you're rebuked for judging a brother or sister harshly? Well, I never. We have to put a stop to this. Just wait till I tell the priest or the pastor. Let her alone. Why do you trouble her? Well, I'm going to go to the chief priest to betray him. Can't put up with that stuff. How do you respond to Jesus when he warns you that you're about to be tried and that you'll likely fail? not me I would never do, do do that and then it happens and you fall flat on your face even as Jesus is watching with tears and pain in his eyes as he realizes the anguish and distress that you've just brought on yourself when Jesus looked at Peter in that courtyard when he denied his lord 3 times Peter ran out weeping Jesus wasn't grieved for himself he was grieved for Peter He just denied the Lord. He had promised to love and follow regardless of the cost. But yet he loved him anyways. He loves us anyways when we fail. Even in the warnings, even knowing that you're going to fall, he prays for you. And he gives you hope and a promise that you'll return and that you'll get up and be better for it. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you that he may sift you his wheat. But I've prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned, to me, strengthen your brethren. You're going to learn a huge lesson here, Peter. and You're going to be a better person for it. How do you respond to a love like that? Because all of that is still happening between all of us, between us and our Lord, between one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, if we'll just pay attention. And when you realize it, when you understand and open the eyes of your heart to see that Jesus is always standing before you, beckoning you, come, cheering you on praying for you, holding your hand, always teaching you things that will make you wiser and stronger and prepared for the challenges to come in the courtyards of the priests, in the quiet moments when the enemy tries to whisper to you that you need to take things into your own hands because this Jesus and Holy Spirit stuff is just whatever, fill in the blanks. When you recognize the love in the eyes that are looking back at you, from within your very own heart, then you'll respond like Mary did. And then you'll finally know what it truly means to be loved. Let her alone. Why do you trouble her? I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will be told as a memorial. And when you learn to do that, the gospel story will be your story be untouchable and invincible, let her alone, this is the gospel, she's part of it, for the accuser of her brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down and they overwhelmed them and he overcame them by the blood of the lamb and by the gospel, by the word of their testimony and they did not love their lives, live their, love their lives to the death. Our stories become His story. In the arms of love, you can't be troubled. You know, it's one thing to preach a sermon on sharing a love and an intimate relationship with the Lord. It's, it's another thing to explain to you how to do it. It's something you just have to experience, you know. Um, and I hope you have and, and, and will and do know that that intimacy of our Father through Jesus Christ and just take the time to sit and and listen and share and that we're not just speaking our prayer life is involved. Being still and knowing that He is God. Letting His love encompass you. Seeing the love in His eyes through spiritual eyes because um, he is there with your by his Holy Spirit it's not just something you have to conjure up in your imagination or emotion you know this last week has been very rough and very emotional for me my mother's currently in the hospital she was in the hospital as of last Friday got out for a couple of days and went back um, She's been in and out of the hospital a lot the last few years, which is primarily the reason she hasn't been up here. She actually made that banner. Most of you don't know that. And uh, that painting on the wall back here is also her handiwork. She didn't do the painting, but she framed it and built all that. Um, but she's having brain bleeds, which really messes with your mind. So she's hallucinating. She's agitated. She doesn't understand what's going on. and unable to do anything take care of herself it's basically like a stroke and uh so friday in the middle of our seminar at new life um taking the day off um i got a call and i rushed out to the hospital and you know covid thing only one person could be in the hospital at a time they just relaxed a little bit this week but uh i just spent the day sitting with her because I remember her last experience was she was horrified and she was traumatized by it because she didn't understand where she was, what was going on. And I spent the whole day just reassuring her and, and just loving her. And the most meaningful time and what seemed to bring her the most comfort was just holding her hand and just looking into her eyes. Um, just sharing that connection of love between a a mother and a son. And uh, me and my brother and sister took turns throughout the week going and just being with her. Make sure she knew she was okay and she was loved. And, uh, and she's back in the hospital again, waiting to get into a rehab facility, which is a good thing. Hopefully she can get better and get home. But, uh, and that's, but that's what I'm talking about here. That we need to have that kind of relationship with the Lord that, yeah, you sit and visit and, yeah, Mom, I wish you would do this, I need you to do this. You know, when you're a kid, and then mm-hmm. when you get older, they ask you to do stuff, and it's just kind of a relationship. It's good, and there's challenges, and sometimes you argue. And yeah, I would never deny you, Laura. Oh, wait, who are you again? You know, you know, we have those relationships with their with loved ones all the time. And, and but there has to be those times that help us through those times, those times of bonding, those times of connection, those times of just sitting and and holding the Lord's hand, looking into his eyes and feeling his heart. and The inexpressible love that he has for you because that's what it is. It's very real. It will get you through anything. Leave her alone. Leave him alone. This is our time. This is my child. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your Holy Spirit, which is indeed in us. uh, Lord, sometimes we just kind of keep them in the box in the corner, and we're sorry for that. We want to move in your love. We want to move in your power. we We want to know you and feel your presence, Lord. That's... That's where our power comes from. That's where our joy, that's where our peace comes from. Our ability to get through the, the rough times, the, the thorn bushes and the, the trials and the confrontations, the challenges, because you're always with us, you're always there. We have those experiences where we just sat and were quiet and, and just bask in each other's presence and love. And Lord, we know that we look forward to a day when we get to be in your presence physically as well as spiritually, all, all the time. There'll you know, be no more pain, no more sorrow, because that stuff has no place in your presence. Lord, your presence in our heart has no place for that either. So we banish that in Jesus' name. We just invite you to move, touch, feel, and heal. And Lord, help us to commit knowing your scripture, to knowing your word, so that when the, when the heart is challenged, the mind can say, yep, I know exactly the answer for that. It's not just a feeling. It's a fact. This is real. You can stand firm against anything. Lord, I just want to agree with everybody here that you'll love and comfort and heal my mother. She knows you. Bring her peace. Lord, we pray for Wayne Shelley's family. And those people in Rightgate who lost loved ones this weekend. Uh, comfort them, be with them. And help those who are traumatized by this, Lord, to overcome that, to know your peace. Just come, with, come alongside them in a, in a very real, intangible, and undeniable way. Lord, all of us, we just agree. Our loved ones, friends and neighbors who are challenging, having challenges and us ourselves just invite you, Lord, to, to move, to come and sit alongside of us, to walk alongside of us, and let us know your presence. Take our hands, to take their hands, and see the eyes of love. here this morning as a family and for always going with us and being with us wherever we are. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.